This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. Our guest this episode describes the fascinating development and operational history of the B-1 bomber. In the news, certifying the last models of the 737 MAX, the Air Force Next Generation Air Dominance Fighter, Germany selects its heavy lift helicopter, piloting an A-330 while sleeping, prison time for an unruly passenger, and staff shortages impact service at European airports. It's all coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. This is episode 704 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and joining me is, drumroll please, Rob Mark. He's contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, part of the Aviation Week group, and he's publisher at JetWine.com. Hey, good evening, everybody. It's nice to be back after, a, <clears throat> I don't know how long I've been off, a month? A hiatus. Something like that. Hiatus, yes, I'm sorry. As long as I've known you, you've been off. Well, that's true, and that's why I'm, you guys can't see it out there in radio land, but I'm wearing a collar so that um, uh, my friends say it will help keep me uh, keep my head on straight. So here's hoping it works tonight. But I want to make a special uh, call-out, because to us vets, uh, tonight's kind of a uh, an anniversary uh, uh, night. It's the uh, 78th anniversary of the D-Day invasion that helped... Uh, helped bring the end to World War II. So to the other vets out there, as well as those on the show here, yeah, well, Air Force didn't really have a, what is it the Army says? Hoorah! Because that's what the Marines <laughs> say too, I think. But the Air Force just, yeah, we just kind of went, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Rob, it's great to have you back. Good to see you. Thank you. Also, here is David Vanderhoof, our aviation historian, currently at the American Helicopter Museum. Hey, everybody. We're, we're glad to have Rob back. It's never quite the same episodes without him. <laughs> Looking forward to tonight because we're going to be talking about real aircraft. Yeah. And to help us with that, Max Trescott is here. He's host of Aviation News Talk podcast. He's a national CFI of the year. And, of course, he's an expert on the Cirrus aircraft. Gentlemen, so much fun to be back with you here again. And, and it's also it's great to have uh, Father Rob back here dressed in his collar. So we'll have to be very respectful of him now. It's the wrong color. Yeah, yes. What does that mean? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm delicate. I think you just have to consider right now that I'm delicate. Okay. So. Well, I, I had heard that Rob was going to come in with a collar. And I, I was under the impression it was one of those, you know, those those cones that uh, the vet gives out. So I'm kind of glad to see it's like not. The cone of shame? Yes. Well, it, well, it was either that one or the one with the spikes and the um, leash. Yeah. See, that's where I thought you were going with that, Max. But, hey, I guess I have you guys all wrong. At least we have you here with us. That's the best part. Yes, that's true. Thank you very much. We're just so happy to have Rob back with us. Uh, hope you'll excuse a little bit of uh, jocularity here. But uh, we need to get right to our guest this episode. That's Kenneth P. Katz. Now, Ken is a longtime airplane geek. 
He was educated in aerospace engineering at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in the University of Michigan. He has over three decades of experience as a U.S. Air Force officer, flight test engineer, and project manager. He's currently employed as a staff project engineer for a major aerospace contractor. Now, Ken is also an aviation author, and his recently published book is titled The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber. Best of all, he's a longtime Airplane Geeks listener. So, Ken, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm, I'm such a super fan of the podcast that I wrote a book just so I could have an excuse to be a guest on the podcast. And it worked. <laughs> I was going to say the same thing. It worked. It did. It did. We don't want people to get the wrong impression, though. You can't argue with success. Well, Ken's book is a, I would call it a massively researched and detailed look at the B-1 bomber. Now, if you thought you knew everything about the B-1, just wait till you read this book. If you didn't know that the B-1 story is fascinating, just wait until you read this book. You'll get a taste of it coming up, but first we've got some aviation news from the past week. Is everyone ready? Ready from the West. Ready in the Midwest. Ready once I'm off mute. (laughs) I guess ready from the guest. There we go. Our first story comes from the air current. You know, the air current, they've always been good, but they just seem to be knocking it out of the park a lot lately, or consistently lately is maybe what I should say, um, with a lot of uh, great coverage. This one is Inside the Convoluted Politics of Certifying the Last 737 MAX Models. Well, the last two 737 MAX derivatives, that would be the MAX 10 and the MAX 7, Uh, If they aren't certified by the end of 2022, then Boeing potentially has a significant problem with the cockpits in those airplanes. And this is because of a bill that was signed in December 2020. It's the Aircraft Certification Safety and Accountability Act, which includes a lot of things. But Section 116 is important here. It's flight crew alerting. And that section says that not later than one year after the date of enactment of this title, the uh, administrator rather shall implement NTSB recommendations A-1911 and A-1912. Now, there is a prohibition beginning on the date that is two years after the enactment of this title, which is the end of this year. The administrator may not issue a type certificate for a transport category aircraft unless... In the case of a transport airplane, such airplane incorporates a flight crew alerting system that at a minimum displays and differentiates among warnings, cautions, and advisories and includes functions to assist the flight crew in prioritizing corrective actions and responding to system failures. So this date is coming up fast. I think Boeing expected the certifications for the MAX 7 and the MAX 10 to have proceeded more quickly. But as we all know, Boeing has had some issues lately with the 737 MAX, and the certification has not progressed quickly. Uh, So the air current is pointing out that there may be a big problem here for Boeing. Well, I I think 
John really hit it on the head uh, w- with this. But, of course, every time everybody talks about Boeing or anybody talks about Boeing, they think that, well, the, the worst is probably over. Uh, but it's not for Boeing in any way, shape, or form. I think the only area they, they seem to have a glimmer of hope is uh, is on the defense side. and uh, But Boeing is in a lot of debt. I mean, I, I forgot. I was listening to a, a podcast that the guys at Aviation Week did this afternoon, and I forget what they, they said the, uh, the debt le- level was, but it was astronomical. And, of course, Boeing's not making a whole lot of money because they're not um, – they're not delivering any 787s. Uh, there's 150 of those sitting on the ground around the uh, Seattle area. No way. I think there might be some in, in uh, Alabama because they make some of the 787s down there. But, um, but again, it's uh, uh, the, the 777X has kind of come to a grinding halt. And then they're facing this issue that we, you just talked about that says, hey, guys, uh, if you don't get your act together and certify something that is an improvement uh, on the, uh, I'm sorry, if you don't certify the uh, the uh, Max 10 uh, before the end of the year, you're going to have to devise a method of uh, engine uh, parameter and operating parameters uh, issue that uh, we like, and uh, that's going to cost Boeing a ton of money. And, and, of course, this all emerged from the fact that uh, – no, I don't think anybody's forgiven them for the fact that uh, after the two MAX crashes, it popped out that they were, they were forcing pilots to, to fly with a system nobody even realized was there, in this case the MCAS, and also that it was dependent on one angle of attack indicator – and I mean, I know when I heard that, I said, no, there's no way nobody builds an airplane anymore without some sort of redundancy. And uh, but but Boeing did. And uh, so they're they're still paying the price for that. Yeah, there's a, a quote in here from a Boeing executive that says, uh, you know, Boeing can't generate any goodwill on Capitol Hill. That kind of summarizes it. So. The system here, it's the an engine indicating and crew alerting system. And there's some, I guess, controversy or difference of opinion as to what Congress' intent was in this bill. And um, the uh, Boeing CEO, Calhoun, says the intent of that legislation was never to stop the derivative product line with respect to the MAX. But that could be the effect here. The air current points out that if this certification for the MAX 10 and 7 does slip into 2023, that they envision three options available uh, to Boeing. One is to get Congress to change the law and exempt those MAX derivatives from that uh, requirement. Or they could modify the aircraft for this engine indicating and crew alerting system that would require significant changes to the to the compute the central computer and possibly even splitting these new derivatives the newest derivatives into separate operating groups which would mean that any uh you know 737 uh, ng and max pilot would not be able to fly every airplane 
And then the third is to abandon the program, which they called a nuclear option, meaning that you just don't proceed with those derivatives. So, I mean, none of those options are particularly appealing, I think. So certainly something that that bears watching. Uh, I think in the best of times, Boeing probably would have found enough uh, congressional support to kind of work through this, work around it even maybe. But given the, the current climate, I'm not sure that could happen. Well, and of course, that may change in the fall uh, when the when the midterm elections occur. Everybody's money is on the fact that the the uh, Republicans are going to take the. Uh, I know we're not supposed to be political, but I can't help it. It's the Republicans that will probably end up uh, controlling the House, and so that means a lot of committees are going to change hands. And uh, Boeing also doesn't have a real. Uh, happy relationship with some folks on the Hill. And I think that's why they just recently announced they're going to move their uh, headquarters out of Chicago and uh, into, I think they're going to Alexandria, Virginia, either Alexandria or Arlington or something. also want to point out that uh, simpleflying.com is saying that they think it's unlikely that 737 MAX 10 will be completed by the end of the year. And I would have guessed that uh, not even knowing anything about the projected date, uh, simply because the FAA seems to be really slowing down the certification process these days and changing it. And all of that is, of course, the, the fallout from the original 737 MAX certification. So they're moving very slowly, very cautiously. I think that uh, in the past, manufacturers probably had a much easier time of uh, kind of scheduling certification and having some rough idea when it might happen. But I would say these days, it uh, it's certainly taking longer than it used to. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's move on to our next item. This is from BreakingDefense.com. The Air Force's secret next-gen fighter has reached development phase. So, Ken, this is pretty exciting. This is uh, NGAD, the Air Force Next Generation Air Dominance Fighter. And we don't really know exactly what that is, I guess, but apparently it's, uh, it's moving forward. Should we be talking about it? It's a secret. I mean, it's, okay. The one thing that blew me away about this article was when they said that this thing may cost over a quarter of a billion dollars a piece. And I don't understand how that will work. How do you fill a ramp with airplanes that cost a quarter of a billion dollars a piece? Well, you have to build 10,000 of them. <laughs> if they're really good, you only need a couple of them. So, Well, another aspect of this is that the sense I'm getting is that this is more than just a single aircraft, single airplane. It's really a family of systems, right? There's NGAD includes new weapons, includes uh, new sensors, and also significantly drones that operate with the fighter. So, you know, when you when you look at the cost of the, the per aircraft cost, I don't know if that includes all these other systems associated with it or with it or if that's just, you know, just the fighter plane itself. There's no detail, so it's very hard to evaluate what this is. So they they have flown, I guess, an experimental prototype reportedly in 2020. And so now that they're moving to the engineering, manufacturing, development stage, um, there's uh, this article actually quotes Richard Abalafia, our, uh, our friend Richard, uh, who has moved on from the Teal Group. He's now an aerospace analyst with Aerodynamic Advisory. Uh, but he thinks that uh, this likely means that the 
Air Force has coalesced around a single fighter design. That's a you know major milestone made by a single prime contractor. Now we don't know who that might be. It could be Lockheed Martin, could be Boeing, Northrop Grumman, all possibilities. Uh, but Northrop is uh, is kind of busy right now working on the B twenty one bomber. Uh, so uh, Abalafia says Richard says that may not make them a likely choice to develop an advanced fighter. Uh, he, he thinks that Lockheed is leading the program, and uh, they have the F-22, F-35 fighters under their belts from development through production. But he does admit that Boeing could emerge as a dark horse developer of the NGAD fighter. We'll see, you know, reference the comments we made in the previous item. What did they say these were going to cost per copy, Ken? Four point something? Over a quarter of a billion dollars a piece. Hey, if you have to ask, you can't afford it. Well, you know, I mean, for that kind of money, we could, couldn't we guys get together and, you know, we could produce them a little slower. But, man, there's a lot of money to be made if it's a, you know, 250 mil a, a crack. I mean, I, I'm just saying. Sure, we got multiple engineers here. Let's Let's do it. The problem is, when they're that expensive, Congress never lets them go into production enough for them to actually come down in price. Yeah, they say they're too expensive. We have to we have to limit the number number. So we're 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 back to learning from why do we only have twenty B twos? Why do we only have X amount of F twenty twos? Because. Along the line, somewhere does someone decided, well, we can't afford these anymore. They're too expensive. But the only way you can afford them is A, export them, and B, produce a lot of them. You know, it's, it's, it's funny that the F-35 costs are going down, but it's basically becoming the free world's fighter for all intents and purposes. So it's, I mean, it's taking the role of the F-16 with just about everybody. So... Yes, those costs per piece will go down. And like Max said, there's more to NGAD than just an airplane because they're going to be – the NGAD program is involving drones, which will be um, – so you are talking about a program, not just an aircraft, even though the manned aircraft has supposedly flown. But – in this day and age of electronic simulation, it might not have it might have been an F fifteen flying with the NGAD software in it. Not even a I mean, there's nothing to say that there is a new aircraft sitting out there that has has flown. That we, we have a lot of simulations now, you know, that show do exactly what prototyping would be do, would be doing. You know, we don't Though the Air Force wants to go back to rapid pro- prototyping, so we'll see. I'm guessing that the airplane that they have out there is 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 to the NGAD aircraft as the YF-16 was to the F-16. That there's something out there that, that really is a real different-looking flying airplane. Simulation's great. Modeling's fantastic. But there's some things you can only learn in flight. And... All the implications are all the the implications that I draw from the public announcements is that they have something out there that's flying that's that's more than just an F sixteen with some or an F fifteen with some systems on it. 
that it's a, it sounds like it's a you know a, a prototype of a new airplane. Now, a prototype of a new airplane is a long way to an actual you know production type airplane, but it, at least it has some family resemblance to it. Just as the X thirty five had some family resemblance to the F thirty five. There's almost always it seems something out there that we don't know anything about that's uh, likely likely very exciting that maybe in 20 years we'll learn more about. You mean you mean like the Lockheed Martin Dark Star? Yes, yes. There's a few of them out there like that, David. All right. But something more uh, tangible and, and uh, current and real is the German heavy lift helicopter program, which has selected the Boeing CH-74F Chinook helicopters, 60 of them. Uh, this is... Uh, a deal or a, a, a purchase that they uh, will use to replace their current fleet of Sikorsky CH-53G helicopters. The value of this, uh, about 4 billion euros, maybe about $4.3 billion U.S. So that's a, you know, that's a good win for Boeing. Yeah, particularly because Sikorsky was the incumbent. And, of course, Sikorsky has a, a new CH-53K King Stallion, which is quite an impressive aircraft. And yet uh, the Germans decided to go ahead with the Chinook, which is a, is a classic. I, I mean, it, I, I sometimes think that aircraft are impressive. Two things that impress me about aircraft are quantity built and longevity in both production and service. And, you know, the, the Chinook is up there with just about with the B-52, the C-130, the KC-135, you know, 60-plus year aircraft. And they're still building new and better versions of it. It's a very impressive aircraft. Yeah, let's hear it for Boeing Ridley. Well, I had some experience when I worked there. I, I mostly worked on the V-22 Osprey when I was at Boeing, but I did a little bit of work with the Chinook. And it's a very complicated aircraft, but by this point, it's and even when I did this, we're talking 30 years ago, it's a, it was a very refined uh, aircraft. At the time, it was the D model, and now we're up to the F, which is a, a substantial improvement over it, just as the D was a substantial improvement over its predecessors. What's the uh, uh, helicopter that the, uh, the, the White House has chosen for the new uh, Marine One? Sikorsky VH-92 Superhawk. Okay. Size-wise, the the uh, obviously the Chinook is much bigger. Yes. They cannot land a Chinook on the White House lawn. It's too big. Likewise, they can't land a V-22 on, on it because it does too much damage to the property of the White House. The V-22 has fairly high disc loading, and so the, the downwash velocity is um is quite high uh, i once got knocked on my head literally when i was working around the v22 and it's a good thing i was wearing a helmet because it dented the helmet and it would have dented my head if i hadn't been wearing one wow wow <laughs> yeah you got to watch it around a v22 so you said the helmet got uh, dented just by the downwash alone or did it throw something no no it? no it got dented when i got thrown by the downwash and the got it. and the helmet slammed against the the ramp which oh my um, it was better that the helmet got dented than that my skull got dented. Ah. But the helmet did its job. Great. That's the important part. But if you asked anybody at Boeing up until recently that they had a snowball's chance in hell to get the German contract, they would have 
yeah, th- this is one of those ones that everybody's shaking their head going, wow, this is kind of impressive. I mean, the, Sikor- the Sikorsky relationship with Germany, um, with the CH-53G has been, you know, they are an- antiques now, but Germany from the were, was hell-bent on the K, and this alludes to another um, possible change, which would be Israel did sign up for the 53K, but they might start going for the 47 too as beyond so Sikorsky will be could be really quickly out of the heavy lift program world um but one of the Germany's consideration was compatibility with the other NATO forces and the heavy lift helicopter for NATO is the CH47 um Great Britain the Netherlands the United States of course so you've got the United States operating a lot of 47s in Germany. Therefore, you know, the compatibility between that and the what the Germans looking for, given this current envir- environment with NATO competing with, with Russia, it makes a lot of sense from a tactical standpoint to have Germany flying 47s and not 53s. I don't think you'll see Sikorsky leave the heavy lift market. They have the Marine Corps as the customer on the CH-53K, and the Marines seem to really like it. I think it's, an, it's by all accounts, an excellent aircraft. We have some good competition going. That's good. That is good. All right. Interesting article from airwaysmag.com. Max T, this, um, well, this doesn't look too good for the um, flag carrier airline of Italy. Yeah, so this is uh, a story about ITA Airways. Now, that is the current name of uh, the former Alitalia, which uh, had their assets purchased a while back. But it was a uh, a flight, an Airbus flight A330 from New York to Rome. Everything went fine. They crossed the Atlantic just fine. Somewhere over France, they got a little sleepy-eyed. And apparently there was a 10-minute period where... Air traffic control was unable to reach the aircraft. Now, it turns out that uh, this is not permitted, I don't think, in U.S. airlines. But uh, for um, overseas airlines, some of them have a controlled rest period in which one of the crew members can take a nap at the controls. And that's what the uh, first officer was apparently doing quite legally. But it's contended that the captain also took a snooze as well, probably accidentally. And it got to the point, it's hard to believe, but they were actually planning to send fighters up to uh, try and figure out what happened. And I was thinking, wow, 10 minutes, 10 minutes out of contact, they're going to send up fighters. Uh, anyway, the uh, uh, the captain later, apparently, according to reports, told uh, the airline that, gosh, no, no, I was not asleep. There were radio communication system failures, which, by the way, maintenance could not duplicate. And there's been subsequent reports on social media that says the captain is now on a, out on the streets looking for a new job. So apparently uh, the airline didn't didn't buy his story. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's funny in, in one sense because, well, of course, we, we have different time and duty, uh, flight time and duty time restrictions on U.S. airlines. And uh, when this story first broke, I asked a friend of mine who's a, a 787 captain, United, uh, you know, on a JFK to Rome run, how many pilots would you have on board? He said, well, let me look. Uh, he said, oh, we'd have three, uh, to be sure, because uh, it's just past that edge where it's it's too exhausting for two pilots. 
And now, of course, what we don't know at this point is how long each of the pilots were uh, uh, were away from their last rest period, uh, other than the co-pilot taking a, a snooze. But I'm saying, wh- how long had they been on duty already about, now let's see, what is it to France? It's probably about six and a half hours, um, not to mention showing up at JFK early and pre-flighting and all that. So we know the two guys were on duty for a while. But again, ITA apparently allows them to do this with uh, two pilots where uh, quite a few of the U.S. carriers said, "Uh uh-uh, we don't do it that way. All right. Uh, You know, uh, we've been talking a lot over the past months about unruly passengers and mostly reporting on how they were unruly, but uh, here, here we have the, the consequences. This is in, your, in our, our typically weekly paddleyourowncanoe.com uh, segment. Woman who knocked out Southwest Airlines' teeth ends up with 15-month prison sentence. Yeah, so this is certainly the biggest sentence I think we've ever seen for anything. It's probably the most egregious behavior that we've heard about as well. It's kind of an interesting story. This is a a woman that in itself is interesting, right? I mean, most of the the violence that we see in the back of airliners is is initiated by by men. But this is a woman who on a southwest flight from Sacramento to San Diego uh, got into a quarrel with the flight attendant, ended up standing up and repeatedly punching her in the in the face. She had uh, three chipped teeth, two of which had to be replaced with crowns. She required stitches for a cut, cut underneath her eye. Plus, she had uh, bruising to her left eye and to her right forearm. The U.S. attorney who uh, was uh, somehow participating in this case said attacks on flight crew members who perform vital jobs to ensure passenger safety will not be tolerated, to which I say, yeah, it's about time. Mm-hmm. So they also, uh, besides a 15-month prison sentence, tacked on uh, $33,000 in restitution and fines. She's also going to be subject to three years of supervised uh, release afterwards, during which, and this is great, she is not allowed to fly uh, on any commercial airline. Uh, and so that, to me, really is the, the kind of teeth that uh, should be applied to uh, to these uh, kinds of uh, you know infractions. Now, she, uh, during the time that she was arrested and the time that she was sentenced, she was also arrested separately for DUI in uh, in California. And uh, I believe that I've read in a separate article that her attorney was trying to get her to just get probation uh, for this Southwest incident because she had never been arrested before. She had a clean record. And I was thinking, holy cow. Uh, Yeah, you can have a clean record. You can be squeaky clean. But when you start knocking flight attendants' teeth out, all bets are off at that point as to what the consequences are going to be. I can't imagine that someone, well, actually, someone who had a a long history of violence probably would have gotten a worse sentence. But to think that they could get probation for this, uh, come on. Yeah, Yeah, that's the part I really, that really drove me crazy is that, I'm sorry, if you had enough evidence to prove that this woman was guilty, why would you, you know, assign her or, you know, uh, give her this punishment and then say, however, you probably won't have to serve any real jail time. Really? Why not? Oh, my Lord. And honestly, does anybody remember before pandemic, did did we hear much about violence in the... uh, uh, 
cabin. I know we always had some some drunks and things like that, but I don't remember much discussion at all about uh, about violence. And uh, I mean, this has got to stop. Those were the good old days when we just complained about emotional support animals, which, by the way, I would much prefer <laughs> to sit here and complain about. I mean, those were fun stories. This is just sad. I'm wondering if the flight attendant isn't thinking about a civil suit uh, against uh, this woman. So uh, th- this may not be the end of it, I guess. Uh, I don't know if she's planning on do- taking that kind of action or if that's available or, or not. But well, depends on whether the woman has any money. I mean, any resources that she could even grab onto if she won. Yeah, that's a good point. I did read elsewhere that, uh, you know, she had the the flight attendant had worked, I believe, for something like 11 years had never had any kind of incident whatsoever. And this had really had, uh, you know, left her um, anxious, I guess, about continuing to, uh, you know, to fly and to do this kind of uh, job. Uh, I can imagine anyone in, in her situation might seriously uh, consider a career change. Uh, and I hope, you know, I, I, I really hope that she gets the kind of help, not just, you know, fixing her teeth, but just, you know, in terms of providing her kind of the, the counseling and, you know, aftercare that uh, anybody who had been involved in something like this would, would really need. It would be sad if she ends up, you know, changing careers simply because of that, because we need, uh, you know, well-trained flight attendants. And I got to say, the Southwest flight attendants, they rock. I mean, of all the airlines I fly, they are more fun. Uh, they have just tremendous spirit. And uh, I, I'm sure that uh, she was, you know, one of those people who was doing a lot to contribute to her airline. All right, one more sto- uh, story. This uh, it seems that the European airports are really suffering here under uh, personnel shortages. Uh, we have a number of articles here, but in one of the Daily Mail, we see that uh, British airports claim that they have forty thousand job vacancies, and the situation is so uh, so dire that uh, even uh, Michael O'Leary. Ryanair's uh, Michael O'Leary has said that uh, he thinks that uh, the military should be brought in to provide security for three to four months, that things are so bad in the airports. What a mess. Yeah, it's really crazy. And at the same time in uh, Germany, uh, Germany has announced plans to hire 2,000 temporary workers to bring in from Turkey to help staff uh, the airports and the uh, the airlines, which, by the way, I was uh, many years ago an exchange student to uh, to Germany when I was in high school, and that w- they had a, a name for these people. They would bring in uh, workers from uh, Turkey and Greece, and they were known as guest, uh, guest, or, guest workers, basically, or gastarbeiter. Uh, and so this is been pretty traditional for them for very many years when the economy is expanding rapidly and they're short of people, they you know, bring in people from, from these countries. But it does show you the challenges that are going on pretty much around the world in terms of being able to staff airlines. Uh, and of course, even KLM has come up with a, a rather odd thing. They're suggesting that to, to help solve the problem, uh, people should be carrying less luggage or you know, leaving it at home. Right, because of the time it takes to process it. <laughs> through security. And, you know, things are starting to get a lot of hand. There, there's a report from Manchester's airport, uh, Terminal 3, that uh, flyers got so tired of waiting for their luggage more than three hours that they basically 
climbed behind a plastic curtain on the baggage carousel to go get their <laughs> their own baggage. Uh, so, uh, I, you know, when we set, when you start to have those kinds of frustrations going, yeah, you know, anything could happen. Well, and related to this, you probably saw that over the Memorial Day weekend, there were over 7,500 flights worldwide that were canceled. And here in the U.S., it was probably on the order of a few thousand. So, you know, somewhere on the order of three to 4,000 flights in the U.S. were canceled. And I'm sure part of it is that it was uh, end of the month and many airline pilots were probably fully timed out. They put in their 110 hours. And so the airlines were short of pilots and ended up having to cancel flights. But yeah, we, we have never in my lifetime seen this level of operational problems with the airlines. I mean, yes, they've always had temporary issues here and there, but this is really sustained and ongoing. And we worry about a pilot shortage. This is, you know, and that's usually we're always talking about three to five years out. This is catastrophic. If we if we've got airports that, you know, this stuff's going on and it opens the opportunity that it something bad will really happen. Can, can I share a funny story since Max mentioned uh, uh, Memorial Day? My uh, my young and uh, who is not exactly that young anymore, but she was in town for the last month to help mom take care of dear old dad, who was ailing. And actually, I got to really love the, dad, do you need anything? Oh, sure. <laughs> How about, uh, anyway, but she split for a week to go see some of her girlfriends from school in New York City. And uh, she was supposed to come home on a Friday night uh, out of JFK. And she uh, she called and said, dad, they they canceled my flight. After, you know, backing the it's going to be delayed half an hour, an hour, three hours, you know, a week from Sunday. I don't know what, but um, so she was stuck in, in New York. She went back and stayed with one of her girlfriends. And I said, hey, you know what? Dad, dad knows what to do. So I, I called Amer. Oh, well, it doesn't matter now. It was American Airlines. But dad called American Airlines, and I, I tried to speak very nicely to the agent and said, look, I, I understand the problems you're going through with all the delays and the cancellations, and but I'm a pilot. I, I get it. I really do. Could you just share some information with me, if you can, about how to help my daughter maybe get out tomorrow? And she said, uh, yeah. Hey, you know, would you hang on for just a second? I said, sure. Do, 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 do. Two minutes, four minutes, eight minutes, 12 minutes. And I got about, about 15, and I said, oh, forget it. So I hung up, and the next morning I called American again, and I went through almost the same rigmarole uh, about, sure, let me just put you on hold for a minute. So to any listeners, if they tell you they're going to put you on hold, scream anything you can to say, no, 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 don't put me on hold, anything. Uh, I'll take a reroute, anything. Uh, but I just thought that the I'm a pilot thing didn't work with a damn. <laughs> and here I was sure you were going to say to help out your daughter, you picked up the phone, you called NetJets, and you said, hey, I need to get my daughter out of New York and back to Chicago. Well, you know, I was going to do that, but then I thought, what does that teach her? If when she's in trouble, dad uh, hires a private jet. Um, and it, it would have been fun until the bill would have come due.
Again, we're speaking with our guest, Ken Katz, author of The Supersonic Bone. And, of course, uh, for those who may not understand some of the uh, the military lingo, the B-1 bomber, like pretty much every aircraft, gets kind of a popular name. And uh, B-1 is B-O-N-E, so that's that's where the bone came from. It's as simple as that, isn't oh, it, Ken? That's it? Oh, God. The, the whole weekend I've been wondering why they called it the bone. Oh, my <laughs> Lord. All right. That's it. The official name of the airplane is the uh, is the Lancer. Nobody calls it the Lancer. It's the bone. The story here is is fascinating, at least to me. And I think this might apply to, you know, other aircraft as well. But, you know, when you look at the the development and history of the, the B-1, both the original, the B-1A, and then the, the real B-1, I guess, the B-1B, or what was actually into production, the history is just a mixture of the development, the companies, uh, the companies involved in the production, uh, the development of, of the aircraft, um, the people involved in it, the... Uh, political winds, the uh, the changing adversarial complexity of the world, uh, different military strategies, and all these things are are kind of changing and and having impacts on this on this one aircraft over really kind of an extended uh, extended period of time. So, it, it, Ken, I thought it was really fascinating to sort of, uh, you know, follow along as all of these different elements sort of swirled around and affected, uh, you know, the outcome and how things changed. It, it, uh, is, is that what interested you in, in, in this story at the beginning? Well, there are a couple different things that drew me to it. The first thing that drew me to it is just the airplane itself. It's one of the most beautiful airplanes, in my opinion, that's ever been built. I mean, it's sleek. It's got these four massive afterburning engines. If you don't like that airplane, if it doesn't appeal to you, you're probably listening to the wrong podcast. I mean, it's just it's just gorgeous. And aside from that, I had a, a personal connection with the airplane going back almost 50 years. When I was growing up, the father of my best friend uh, in elementary school was a engineer on the program for one of the contractors. And he, he knew that I loved airplanes, you know, even back then. And he would bring me back pictures and things of it. So I've been interested in the airplane for 50 years. But um, when I got into it and I said, this would be an interesting thing to, wrote, to write a book about because the previous book, that this sort of definitive book on it had been written over 25 years ago. So there was an enormous amount of history that it just didn't have in the book. So I said, it was, it's time for a new book on the airplane. And as I got into it, I said, you know, this is a fascinating story because um, there are so many twists and turns. What the airplane turned out to be was very different than what it was intended to be. If you had been at the rollout of the B-1A in 1974, for that matter, the rollout of the B-1B in 1984, and you had said, this airplane is going to be one of our premier close air support platforms dropping bombs on terrorists and insurgents in the Middle East, they would have looked at you like, like there's a third arm growing out of your forehead. Like, what kind of weirdo are you? What are you talking about? But in fact, that's what happened. And, and how the airplane evolved um, to be things that it never was intended to be is a fascinating story. And it really kind of goes back, I guess, to the, in some ways, to the B-52, Right. Even as the B-52 was under 
initial production, maybe even before, there were still thoughts about what comes next. And so you have to consider the the B-52. It um, leads into the um, XB-70. Um, it's a story about uh, ICBMs and, you know, what what is the competition uh, politically, strategically, militarily for uh, for for bombers. And, um, you know, these things all all impacted it. But the the initial idea for the B-1 uh, was to deliver nuclear bombs um, into the Soviet Union, which, like you say, is completely different than uh, close air support. No, absolutely. I mean, the airplane, the story really begins in 1954. And to put that in perspective, in 1954, the B-52s were still in test and had, hadn't even been delivered to the Strategic Air Command yet. But this was a period of enormous technological optimism. Remember, 10 years before, our most state-of-the-art bomber was the B-29. And here we were on the brink of bringing in an intercontinental range you know, jet bomber. And so people said, well, we better start working on the replacement to this airplane that isn't even in service yet. And they explored multiple concepts, one of which became the, the intercontinental ballistic missile, one of which was a, a nuclear-powered, not nuclear-armed, but nuclear-powered bomber with a reactor, which was a crazy idea, but they were so caught up in interesting new ideas with um, jets and nuclear power and things like that, that that actually continued for quite a while. And the third was a bomber that actually burned jet fuel, but was going to go at high supersonic speeds because... If if you looked at the progression, let's say from B seventeen or B twenty nine to B fifty two, this it was let's go higher, let's go faster. So the logical thought was, well, we're in the age of supersonics now, so let's even go higher and faster. And the airplane that came out of that was the B seventy Valkyrie, which was a six hundred thousand pound Mach three plus airplane, um, probably the most one of the most spectacular airplanes that's ever been built. Uh, the problem is, and, and, and in the end, uh, North American built that airplane and flew it, but it turned out that that was the wrong airplane for a whole variety of reasons, most fundamental of which was that higher and faster was actually the wrong answer. If you wanted to penetrate air defenses, you wanted to go low. And so the B-70 couldn't go low, it only could go high. And in fact, the B-52 was a better airplane at going low than the B-70 was. So after going through this elaborate effort on what's going to replace the B-52, the answer was now the B-52 is better. Of course, this also coincided with the advent of the age of missiles. Missiles had seemed like a far out idea in the mid-1950s, but by the time, you know, you're talking about 1960 or so or the late 50s, they weren't a far out idea anymore. They actually were becoming quite practical. So people started to ask the question, do we even need a manned strategic bomber anymore? Can we just do this with missiles? So um, you've got a, a, a kind of a very complicated multivariable game going on. In the end, the Air Force um, started to work on a new bomber. And in this case, the focus was on they wanted an airplane that still could go supersonic, but they, mostly they want an airplane that could go very low and very fast for thousands of miles in terrain following flight. So you end up with a very different kind of airplane than the B-70. Uh, at the same time, there was still this real controversy. Do we need bombers at all? And if we need bombers, can we just get by with a couple as kind of a backup to the missiles? And because of that, and because of that controversy, and in particular, Secretary of Defense McNamara, who was the Secretary of Defense between 1961 and 1968, he said, no, 
we're not going to build a major new bomber. It's a waste of money. Um, we're going to primarily go with missiles. We'll keep some of the newer B-52s as a backup, and we'll build some FV-111 variants of the F-111. Uh, meanwhile, there was some support for a, a major new bomber in Congress. And of course, the Air Force really wanted this. So the uh, program continued really as a series of studies. And there were multiple studies during the 1960s, uh, one, the last of which was called AMSA, or the Advanced Manned Strategic Aircraft, although WAGs also called that America's Most Studied Aircraft because they just kept studying and they never did. And AMSA... Um, is really the roots of, of the B-1 as we know it today. In 1969, there was a new administration in town, and there was a new Secretary of Defense. And um, the, the Nixon administration and, and its uh, defense leadership decided they were going to go ahead with AMSA. And that became the B-1. And the B-1 was, uh, was an interesting airplane because it was, a, it was an advanced airplane, but it wasn't a cosmic advanced airplane like the B-70. It was a practical advanced airplane. It was an airplane where it wasn't just a question of speed. Um, they started thinking about things like reliability and maintainability and structural integrity and avionics integration and electronic countermeasures. Um, so it was, a, it was what I would call a very well-balanced design. And um, that airplane um, was uh, designed and built and first flew in 1974. And it suffered from exquisitely bad timing. The airplane itself was a very good airplane. I mean, it, I mean, it had some problems like any advanced airplane will have, but basically it worked very well. But the problem is, is that the uh, early to mid 1970s were a bad time if you wanted to have an expensive defense project. This was in the aftermath of the Vietnam War. Um, there was a lot of anti-military sentiment in the United States. There was an increased awareness of, of problems of poverty and environmental degradation. And people said, you know, our priority is not to build, an, you know, to, to build uh, yet more nuclear weapons. There also was uh, some belief that arms control treaties were a better way to ensure the peace than, um, than a new bomber. One of the things that I like to think about with this book is that, you know, we're all fanboys and in some cases fangirls. We love airplanes. But for the people who make decisions, they don't love airplanes and they're not supposed to love airplanes. They get a, one of the reasons why they get elected is because people don't want to have um, H-bombs exploding over their house when they're watching television. And they elect people to, to prevent that from happening. And those people have to not just say what's the best bomber, but they think about what's the best defense policy. Is it arms control? Can we get by with missiles? Is there a cheaper substitute for the B-1? Maybe the B-1 is the answer. But if you just think about it in terms of what's the, the, the right bomb, what's the best bomber we can build, then you really don't understand why decisions were made the way they, that they were made. So it was a bad environment for the political environment for the, the B-1. And then um, President Carter was elected in 1976, and he had a campaign promise that he was going to cancel production of the B-1. There was another thing that was happening at the same time. Um, the, the modern cruise missiles were being developed. There have been cruise missiles for a long time, but the jet engines were too thirsty. The nuclear weapons were too big. The electronics was too unreliable, and the navigation systems were too inaccurate. So they weren't very good. The new cruise missiles were very, very good. And people started to say, you know, why do we need to have a new B-1? We can just uh, take our B-52 and we can replace, we can arm it with these cruise missiles. If we do that, we don't need a B-1. 
So there was a tremendous amount of controversy. President Carter, um, uh, who was very detailed oriented, actually got into this decision personally and, and looked at the pros and cons. And he came to the conclusion, and obviously he was somewhat predisposed this way because of his campaign promise, that um, that he did not want to go ahead with production of the B-1. Um, as a So in, in the summer of 1977, he announced that we were not going to do that. Now, of course, in our system, the president does just unilaterally do things. So there was quite a, uh, quite a controversy in Congress afterwards. He threw a bone to the B-1 supporters. He said, we'll continue to, to test the aircraft as a hedge for the future, or perhaps more cynically, just to mollify the critics to give them something. So the the B1 went away as a production program in 1977 although work continued on um, they built the fourth prototype and they continued to test them into uh, 1981 the B1A prototypes but uh, as a production program it went away and for the second time the air force had said what are we going to do to replace the B52 and the answer was the B52 this time with cruise missiles um then then the world changed again um, in the mid to late 1970s, the Soviets were being highly aggressive. They also had a massive nuclear buildup. And whereas in the early to mid 1970s, there was a very strong um, um, uh, anti-military and, and anti kind of uh, high tech weapons um, uh, sentiment um, by the late 1970s, that was going away. And so people said, hey, we need to do something quick to boost up our military and to have a very visible increase in our nuclear deterrent. And on the airplane front, people started to think about um, what might that be? And they looked at a lot of different options. They ranged from variants of the B-1 to um, a, a, a major reworking of the FB-111, perhaps using wide-body airplanes like 747s as, cru- as massive cruise missile carriers. And this is all in addition to arming the B-52 with cruise missiles. At the same time, politically, um, you know, you you saw the transition from the Carter administration to the Reagan administration. The Reagan administration, of course, one of its major issues was that we were being too uh, soft on the Soviet Union and we needed to do a massive buildup. So um, in, in 1981, the Reagan administration came in. And they proceeded to announce a truly massive um, uh, buildup of our nuclear forces. That included not only continuing to deploy cruise missiles on the B-52, we also were going to bring in the B-1, what was called the B-1B, a modern, improved version of the B-1 that had been tested in the 1970s. We were going to build 100 of those. And those were going to kind of be a gap filler because we we already had a B-1 that worked. So if you were going to build a new one, it was going to just built on the basis of what was already proven. And then you were going to also build the B-2, the advanced technology bomber, which was a stealth bomber. But it was understood that that was very, very exotic. So that wasn't going to get into service until the 1990s. So the B-1 was going to provide an interim boost to our defense efforts. And um, 100 of those airplanes were built. Um, They uh, had a lot of problems. Um, There was nothing at the time people were saying, oh, it's a terrible, ill-conceived, disastrous airplane. That, those actually, that was an exaggeration. The airplane had some significant technical problems, but they were all solved with time and money uh, to a greater or lesser extent. Most of them were totally solved and a few of them were mostly solved. But then the Cold War ended in 1991. And at just about the time the airplane got to be really, really good, 
Um, it no longer had a mission. In 1991, President Bush uh, ordered that all bombers were to be removed from their alert mission because the Cold War was over. And, and now you had a very interesting question. We had just spent north of $20 billion on 100 of these airplanes. They were new. They worked very well. What are we going to do with them? Are we just going to park them? Ken, before we answer that question, let me just jump in and, and just make a, a point that the way that you have uh, written this is, you know, as you describe as you describe in the book um, this this history that that you've just related, there is an enormous amount of detail about every aspect, practically, of the airplane, every aspect of the the decisions that have been made, and and so forth. Is this level of detail that's sort of intertwined? in the writing that uh, really impressed me. For example, you you spend uh, a certain amount of time explaining the complexities of uh, inlet design for the engines and how critical that is and what, you know, why that's critical and what the considerations are. Uh, another really interesting one that, because I had noticed that when you look at the B1 from the side, there's a dip in the fuselage, right, in the, in the midsection, and you describe why that is, right? It's, I think it's a constant cross-sectional area because of the blending of the, uh, the wing roots to the fuselage. Area rule. The area rule. Area rule. rule. Yeah. It's, it, there's it, kind of, if I can sort of take a tangent, what went into writing this book. There are a few things that went into it. I got started writing what turned into a, what was going to be a fairly modest book at the beginning. And then I kept meeting more and more people, largely through some closed Facebook groups of, of B1 people that I kind of begged my way onto. One uh, having to do primarily aircrew and one primarily being uh, flyers. Um, I also knew some people in flight test and people kept introducing me to other people. And before it was over, I had over 100 hours of interviews with something like 45 people and big boxes of pictures and documents started showing up. And so um, I had for example, flight manuals of every tail number of B1A. Um, I had flight logs of every flight test mission. All sorts of incredible stuff was showing up. Um, pictures that have never been seen before in public. Not that they're secret. They just have never been uh, never been shown before. Um, incredible amounts of material were showing up. People were, were really generous. And to that, I applied my own three-plus decades of experience in, in aerospace and to sort of explain what this airplane's really about and how its design ties into its requirements. Not just here's what the widget is, but here's why it was designed this way. Um, and uh, so I was able to, if you will, fill in the blanks with my engineering knowledge. And, uh, but it's not just a technical book. It's very much a people book and a policy book. It's, it, I try to look at it from a lot of different directions. But without a doubt, um, this was a book that was made possible by the internet. I just never could have met this many people uh, without it. And then those people, and if you look in the acknowledgements, you'll see there's there's something like 50 or 60 names of people. And um, this book just never could have been what it was uh, without the help of all those people. Are there any uh, flying copies of the B-1 still around? or are they? Oh, yeah. It's an, it's an operational first-line combat aircraft. Four B-1As were built. They're all gone. There were 100 B-1Bs built, they were delivered between 1984 and 1988. There are now 
I believe, 45 remaining in service. There are two operational bases. Uh, the, there's a bomb wing down at um, Dias Air Force Base and then a bomb wing at Ellsworth Air Force Base. So 45, if my memory is correct, airplanes still operational today. And it is very much a first-line combat aircraft. And you were talking about the uh, photos. That's really the thing that struck me. I mean, we all joke about, you know, which magazines we read for the for the photos. But the photos here are just fantastic. I love uh, just being able to see the tremendous level of detail that you have. Now, here's something I'll ask you about because I, I know lots of people will know this, but this is not something that I'm familiar with. Tell me about the tracking targets which are painted on the sides of uh, some of the airframes. What are those used for? I believe some of the you're thinking about some of the B1As that had these targets on them. You know, the word that we use in flight test is called TSPI, T-S-P-I. It's time, space, position information. And for a variety of reasons, you really want to know where the aircraft is. So you can use radar. But if remember, we're all talking we're talking about way before GPS was around. Um, in the you know, up until fairly recently, the way that you did that was you used uh, what were called cine theodolites, which is to say movie cameras on um, very accurate azimuth elevation um, tracking devices. And so you could uh, position the air- aircraft to within a couple of feet, and those targets gave you a very specific point to uh, track the aircraft on, because the aircraft overall is pretty big. So if you're tracking a specific point on the airplane and you might want to use that, let's say, for navigation testing or weapons delivery testing, you can uh, tell its location within uh, a few feet. Uh, Are those ground-based tracking devices? Yes. Okay. Yes. So, Ken, you were talking about the, uh, you know, the 100 aircraft, the the B-1Bs, and what were we going to do with them? Um, They they eventually uh, ultimately found... uh, opportunities for for missions that uh, well suited to that aircraft well you could argue that the person who saved the b1b was uh, saddam hussein it wasn't that the b1b was used in the the first gulf war in 1991 in fact it was grounded because it had engine problems but um it was very clear that the um that we had security challenges after the cold war they were different security challenges but we had security challenges of the likes of Saddam Hussein. And when you looked at those challenges, you said, you know, the B-1, if we converted it to a conventional bomber, could be a very effective airplane, let's say, to rapidly intervene if he invades Kuwait. Or, you know, comparable things that might happen with North Korea or the Iranians or that level of threat. And so the 1990s were a period of transformation for the B-1 moving from the Strategic Air Command, which was uh, disestablished, to Air Combat Command, um, integrating it with uh, other conventional forces, um, adapting it for conventional weapons, and in particular for precision-guided weapons. Um, They did round-the-world nonstop flights to show that basically a B-1 could put at threat any target, anywhere. And that all uh, took about 10 years to... Uh, transform the B-1. And that was exceptionally good timing because on September 11th, 2001, we know what happened. And shortly thereafter, uh, B-1s and B-52s were on their way to the island of Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean. And starting in October of 2001, uh, we used them against the Taliban. 
And that began a period of um, 20 straight years of combat operations for the B-1. Now, the B-1 had actually first been used in combat with non-precision weapons in 1998 against, um, against Iraq. That was called Operation Desert Fox. And then in 1999, when we went to war in the Balkans uh, because of the dissolution of um, uh, Yugoslavia, again, the B-1 was used. But uh, those were fairly short-term efforts. The combat operations that started in 2001, the B-1 was almost continuously involved. Not quite continuously, but very close to it. And it turned out that this airplane that was built for World War III was actually an exceptionally capable conventional bomber. It had a lot of things going for it. It had long range, um, carried a lot of fuel. So you could park it over Iraq or Afghanistan or Syria and keep it on tap, you know, if you will, until um, someone needed help. You didn't have to send it out to a pre-programmed target like you would in the Cold War. You could just say, go up here. It carried a lot of weapons. Um, so it wasn't like you just dropped a bomb and then you had to call Winchester and go home. It, it had four people on board. So that gives you a lot of flexibility. One person can be flying the airplane. One person can be looking for the tanker. One person can be talking on the radio to a uh, forward air controller on the ground. One person can be targeting the smart bomb, um, you know, as opposed to a fighter where one person's trying to do all that stuff. Um, it's fast. Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria, these are big countries. So you park a B-1 over head and someone says, help, we've been ambushed. Sweep back those wings, punch in the afterburners and at you know, Mach 1.2, you're screaming uh, to the rescue. In addition, airplanes like the B-1 are computerized. If you will, they were kind of the first generation of airplanes that were computerized. That meant that a lot of the capabilities were in software. Um, that meant you could upgrade the airplane to carry things like smart bombs. In addition, they were very clever about doing things like um, wiring in laptop computers to provide capabilities above and beyond what the uh, the actual aircraft weapon system computers could do. So um, the people involved did a tremendous job of not only upgrading the airplane technically, but also upgrading how they thought about combat. It wasn't just a pre-planned single inter- psyop, single grade operation. Plan, which was basically the roadmap for, for you know, attacking the Soviet Union with nuclear weapons. Instead, it was a very flexible, on-response approach to warfare. And uh, the B-1 was supremely successful in its mission. When we were talking the other day, um, you mentioned, Ken, that someone asked you, who did you write this book for? And I really liked your answer to that question. Well, my best friend, who is not a particular aviation geek, but he, uh, he's a very smart guy. He's actually an ophthalmologist. He was reading my drafts and uh, he had some concerns about where the book was going. And he said, Ken, who are you writing this book for? And I thought about it and I kind of fumfered. And finally I said, you know, I'm writing this book for myself. This is the book that I would like to read. And if I'd like to read it, I think that they'll, since I read a lot of books about airplanes and I think I have a pretty good feel, then I think that there are other people who will like the book too. So basically, I wrote the book for myself. And I think that's what makes it so readable uh, for people like us who have an interest in in aviation and are generally interested in the technical details. 
uh, but don't want to be swamped by them or you know overloaded by them. It just works so well. Another one of my friends had another very insightful thing. He was reading over a chapter and he said, Ken, he said, I can't follow what you, no one can follow what you're saying, except if they too are a senior member of the Society of Flight Test Engineers. And I took, and and so that was actually very good input. And I um, made sure that um, I toned things down. And when I explained them, that when I used a concept and introduced some pretty serious technical material, that um, I explained what it was and in a way that the average person who would read this book, who was not the person on the street, but not necessarily an engineer, would uh, be able to understand. I was going to ask you about the Society of Flight Test Engineers. Uh, I can imagine, you know, who that might include. Is it a very large group? Is the, is there an annual convention? What do you guys do? Well, there is. It's a it's an organization. It's it's. Um, we're somewhat similar to the Society of Experimental Test Pilots, only we're the flight test engineers as opposed to the ex- experimental test pilots. Um, there must be, I'm guessing, a, a couple of thousand members worldwide. It's very much a global organization. And there's an annual symposium, which is a, uh, a technical conference. And I must admit, I haven't been particularly active recently because I, I'm actually not working in flight tests now, but I've always maintain a strong interest and I've got friends. So I've, I've always stayed a, as a member and I am uh, proud of my affiliation. It's a very interesting organization. And in fact, um, the collection of technical papers that are stored on the uh, society's website, and we also have access to the Society of Experimental Test Pilots website and all their technical papers, that was a major source of information for several of the chapters of the book. Mm. How about the, there's a B-1 Bomber Association. What kind of an organization is that like? Um, I would look at that as a, it's somewhat of a fraternity, if you will. Of um, it's It started off as primarily B-1 um, flyers, uh, pilots and uh, weapon system officers. However, um, there's an increasing push to get maintainers as members. Um, super nice group of people. And uh, they have a, uh, a, periodically they have reunions, which are a lot of fun. Um, I was uh, honored to be invited to be the guest speaker at the uh, reunion uh, back in May. And it's just, a, it's just a really nice group of people. They've got great stories. Um, many of the people who are members of their, uh, of the association were uh, people who contributed to my book in various ways. I mean, when you, in the book, when you see somebody's name, there's a pretty good chance that I actually talk to that person. Not always. Obviously, there are more names than there are people I talk to. But you can look up the list of interviews and you can see, you know, who I talk to. And in a lot of cases, you know, when I, when I talk about a particular mission that was flown, say, over Iraq, um, I talk to people who are on board. Or, you know, what does it take to deploy a B-1 and, and what were the logistics and maintenance considerations? I talk to people who did that. So it definitely made the book a lot more interesting, a lot more uh, depth and color. And the book is available on Amazon, all the places you would normally look for books? Sure. It's, it's uh, available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's available through the um, U.S. distributor, which is Casimate Publishers. Um, if you live in the U.K. or Europe, it's actually published by Pen & Sword in England. And so you can get it directly from them. But uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, avail- it's basically available wherever, you know, books are sold in, in 2022. Sure. How long did it take you to write the book? 
Well, I've been, you know, when I start get an idea for a book, I sort of start collecting data and reading about it, cogitating. And that's probably been going on for 10 or 15 years. Um, the intensive work was really between 2019 and, and 2021. And then it was like a second full-time job. Um, I did a lot of interesting things. Um, not only did I conduct all the interviews and, and, and go through the immense amount of uh, material that uh, people were sending me, but um, I also went down to Dias Air Force Base. The Air Force uh, graciously hosted me uh, down there. I did uh, interviews down there. I did a lot of photography, which shows up in the book. Um, I asked to get a familiarization flight on the airplane, and I didn't get that, but I got a very cool consolation prize, which is I got an hour um, in the simulator. And so, um, you know, to go from flying Piper Archers to flying uh, the B-1 was interesting. It's a beautiful flying airplane, by the way. It's fast and it's complicated. And because of the variable sweep wing, you've got, you don't have like, you're not like flying one airplane. You're flying like a family of airplanes and you got to keep your configuration and limits in mind. But um, it's a, it's a beautiful airplane. I've flown the B-52. When I was a flight test engineer out at Edwards, I, I got a little bit of, of stick time, yoke time. And the, B, the B-52 is a, a really tough airplane to fly. It's not a nice flying airplane at all. The B-1 is, is just outstanding. I, I am telling you that if you're a decent pilot, um, you could get in the B-1 and not, I'm not saying you could just go off and fly a combat mission, but in terms of just basic aircraft control, um, you could jump right and fly it. It's a beautiful flying airplane. Well, flying the simulator doesn't sound like a consolation. That sounds really awesome. No, no, it was, it was great. It was, uh, the Air Force really helped me on this project. Um, I'm very appreciative. You could probably end up doing far more in an hour in a simulator than you ever would have gotten to do in the actual aircraft. Oh yeah, yeah. The they, the Air Force probably wouldn't have let me uh, drop uh, precision guided bombs. But, no, uh, I did in the simulator. Huh. No, no. I think they would have frowned on that. All right, Ken. Very good. So uh, we should mention that in our conversation here, we've just really scratched the surface of the the content in the book. There is just you know, so much more uh, in in all of it. Interesting. So. Big, big uh, project, big success. Uh, do, you, do you have anything left in you, Ken, or is this is, is, is this pretty much uh, all one human can do? No, I, I've got several other book projects I'm working on. Um, I'm working on one now about the history of remote piloted aircraft in the Air Force. I've got another book on um, the S3 Viking that I've been fooling around with for entirely too long, and I need to uh, get that written. Um, I actually have a follow-on concept for a B1 book because I've met so many people that um, I've got an idea, but uh, I need to hold off on that a little bit. Between my real job and all my other things, I've got enough irons in the fire right now. And how about you uh, personally on social media? Any presence there that people can uh, find you? I'm on Twitter. It's uh, Kenneth P. Katz, and it's uh, just aviation and space content that interests me. All right. Terrific. Well, it's been uh, a real pleasure having you on the show. It, it was a, a special pleasure uh, going through the the book, which, of course, is the supersonic bone development and operational history of the B-1 bomber. I had a great time. It was really hard to put down. I found it was, I just wanted to see Thank what you. was going to happen next and learn a lot along the way about well, some things that I had some familiarity with, but a lot of other things that, you know, I had no idea. Uh, it was just a fascinating read. So th thanks, Ken. Great job. Thank you. What's up with the geeks? 
Uh, Max Trescott, you're always out there flying around doing something. What have you been up to lately? Well, today was uh, kind of two different fun extremes. I started off uh, with a mountain checkout gentleman who has been a private for a couple of years now, wanted to get checked out in flying in the mountains. So we uh, flew up to three airports. Uh, we were up at 9,500, which is about the lowest altitude you can sneak through to uh, Truckee from this side. And there are hills that are higher than us as we go through at that uh, altitude. Made a couple landings at Truckee, and then we went down to uh, South Lake Tahoe Airport at the other end of the lake. Beautiful view, lots of snow still up there. And then from there, we went down to Columbia which is down in the uh, the gold country area. So they used to do a lot of mining there back when the, the 49ers were running around in 1849. It's got some unusual terrain. And so rather than flying a standard rectangular pattern, often we kind of end up coming in a little bit of an angle to the, to the runway to avoid that nice hill that's right on short final that's lined up with the the runway. And I was happy that uh, the guy I was flying with didn't mind me sticking my three GoPros up. So I just checked. I've, I now have 388 gigabytes of video <laughs> from what was a 4.9 hour flight. Now I didn't run the cameras the entire time, but oh my gosh, it's going to be fun to uh, you know, chop that up into a couple you know, short little videos. It w would not make sense to put out a, a three and a half or four hour video, uh, but that was definitely uh, fun. And then the uh, the other end of the day, after I got back from my uh, almost five-hour flight, I got to jump in the swimming pool with my 13-month-old grandson for the first time. So that was great fun. And all I can tell you is the uh, the, the new word that he loves is bubbles. <laughs> so <laughs> we had great fun making bubbles in the pool. And that was probably even more fun than the, uh, the mountain checkout flight today. Wonderful. How, how old did you say he was? 13 months. Oh, 13 months. So probably a few more months before you buy him his first uh, little toy airplane. Yeah, probably. And by the way, I, I'm not, uh, just to make it clear to the audience, I'm not old enough to, to be a grandfather. We adopted very old children and they adopted very old children. So that's <laughs> the only way that, that works out that I happen to be a grandfather at my age. Sure. <laughs> we believe what, that. What, what do you mean, Sure. <laughs> All right. Hey, David, anything exciting going on at the museum? We had an interesting Saturday. The museum was closed for a special event, and we had a wedding reception at the. And believe it or not, the bride and groom flew in via helicopter, which was kind of nice. They came in in a Robinson 44, and then the bridal party and everybody went for rides as the wedding reception was going on. So that was that was kind of fun, and it was what was interesting was. The bride and groom just liked the helicopter museum. Neither the bride nor the groom had anything to do with aviation whatsoever, other than they lived in the area and they thought it was a great thing to do. So that was kind of a fun aspect. And and the best part was what I felt really good about them was was the fact the president was in Rehoboth. So we weren't under the TFR, but evidently um, some other guys were busting TFRs over the president's um, house. Luckily, this time it wasn't near us because usually when that happens, they end up buzzing our airfield and I get F-15s and F-16s screaming overhead. So upcoming in three weeks, Max, we've got Innovations in Flight. That's right. And then the following weekend at our museum, we have our Family Fest, which is our big car show, helicopter show, 
um, big family event at the museum. So June's going to be pretty busy. The well, Uver uh, Uver Hazi Innovations in Flight Day. We should we should mention again, and uh, a lot of people I know listening are familiar with this. But this is at the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum, at the uh, adjacent to Dulles Airport in Northern Virginia, and they have uh, this event. Almost every year. Every Father's Day weekend, for all intents and purposes. Right, right. So uh, this year's uh, event is modified, um, as was last year. The uh, The event is basically out outside in the back, um, where a number of aircraft uh, come in, fly in, and uh, taxi over there from Dulles. Uh, the museum will be open, so you can go into the museum during the event. But there are no... Uh, special exhibitors inside, well, anywhere, but not inside the museum as we did. We always had an Airplane Geeks uh, table set up. Um, so uh, let's see. David, you're going to be there. I'm going to be there. Yep. Um, but we won't have a table set up inside because we're not allowed to, and we won't have a table set up outside because we're not allowed to. Um, but uh, we'll be around there. Is Hillel flying his plane in? Um, I believe so. Okay. So, yeah. I'm assuming, Max, that we are st- our still intention is um, on that Saturday night after the event, we have a meetup at Red Robin, which is just down the road outside of the museum at the end of the airport. Um, so we'll have a meet and greet if anybody wants to come out. We always have a good time. Um, lots of people show up, and it's a good it's a good evening just to meet up and talk to everybody and and see each other for another year. And just um, for to be uh, complete here, so that that Saturday, what's the date, David? It's eighteenth, uh, June eighteenth, the eighteenth. Yep, June eighteenth, twenty twenty two. So look for you there. Okay, uh, Rob. I assume that you've done nothing aviation-wise because you've probably been laying in bed and had other people wait on you hand and foot for the past uh, three weeks or so. Well, not quite lying in bed, but I mean, I have. You know, I've obviously been trying to exercise, and uh, but I do find that after you've had a, a major surgery, it doesn't matter how good you feel. Um, and David can probably atone to this, but your body just says. No, 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 no. I think we need a little nap. Yeah, it just happens, and so I'm trying not to push it. Yeah, what what I what I told Rob was, you know, what what most people don't realize is the surgery's the easy part. It's the recovery that's hard. Boy, you ain't kidding, buddy. I learned that when I had my when I had my tumors removed. You know, I I told everybody, oh, I'll be back a week after, two weeks after. You know, I had the operation. Uh, yeah, no, it was six weeks, and even then, it was a long recovery. So, definitely, Rob, you just take your time, and it'll get better. Now, Rob, when you say you're taking it easy, does that mean you're no longer mowing the grass again after surgery? Uh, no, actually, I I did it uh, the other day. Um, oh, you did? Okay. With the help of my bride, because uh, I can't do any lifting. That's the real, because they don't want to put any strain on on the on my neck. So I can push and I can walk, and it's electric. So I just press the handles, and it's kind of neat. But lifting the heavy wet grass out of the lawnmower, uh, uh-uh. uh. 
No, no, no. That's a job for uh, someone else like my bride. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hey, we got a note from Alex. Uh, Alex is uh, with the uh, AARP organization. And when I saw that, I'm thinking, okay, this is definitely not aviation-related, not from AARP. Well, I was wrong. AARP Studios has something called uh, Reporting for Duty. Uh, it's a, I guess it's a, you know, it's a video series uh, where they have uh, a number of different episodes. And they have one out that's titled The Truth About Being One of the First Women to Fly the F-14. And this is about uh, Lieutenant Carrie Lorenz, the U.S. Navy, um, retired, became one of the first women to fly the F-14 Tomcat. So it's a it's a story about the impact that had and how that continues to inspire women in the armed forces. So there's a video on YouTube. It's titled Flying an F-14. I can't believe it was legal. And we'll put a, a link to that in the show notes. Uh, it's a it's a great little uh, a great little video. It's a fantastic story. Uh, so uh, we'll uh, we'll we'll pass that along. But also and, seeing uh, Top Gun uh, Maverick was uh, quite a, a rush. So I don't know how many of you guys have seen it, but uh, I we saw it in Dolby last weekend, and <laughs> holy uh, man, you you almost need a seatbelt. Uh, you really do because the photography is just awesome, and the it's very loud. <laughs> Good, I like that. I saw it on the special preview in IMAX, and at no reason should you not go see this movie. It is really good, and even if you aren't a airplane fan, it's a it's a good movie. It was really respectful to the original. Um, the whole scene with Val Kilmer, if you know about what's going on with Val Kilmer, was um, – kind of makes you want to well up. The flying scenes are amazing. The piloting by VX9, who did most of the uh, piloting, um, were fabulous. You know, Lockheed Martin going out of their way to design a a hypersonic aircraft specifically as a set prop was kind of impressive. But overall, if you like the first one, the sequel's even better. If I could jump in, there's another aviation movie that came out that you really have to watch. Do you remember three years ago when you had uh, guests about the D-Day Squadron? Yes. Yes. Well, the documentary movie about that is now out. It's called Into Flight Once More. And um, I saw it, and it is A++. It is just an outstanding movie. They they work in the, the airplanes, the flying, some of the profiles of interesting people associated with it, the gathering in um, in Connecticut that Max, you and I were both at, the uh, the you know the flight across the Atlantic Ocean, the stuff in uh, England and Normandy. It is a wonderful documentary, and I know that you know uh, Top Gun Maverick has gotten all the attention, but if you like airplanes, you should definitely see this one it's called into flight once more and it's on it's uh, on cable uh i saw it on uh, amazon uh, i think it's available on uh, some of the other uh, online things too i believe it's on apple and uh it's it's on the uh, d-day squadron website the uh, link to it 
All right. We'll uh, we'll try to put some links in the show notes for this episode to, to point you in that direction. Yeah. Good. Thanks, Ken. I'm glad you brought that up. A few uh, items from listeners. We we heard from uh, Ernie, our friend Ernie. Ernie is a great guy, by the way. Um, have met him in the past. Uh, he said some feedback on David's comments about the rotor system height on the R44. And this is uh, something that Ernie knows uh, very well. He says, this machine has a teetering rotor system. And as Max West pointed uh, noted, prevailing wind or terrain contour may affect your head clearance. In typical conditions, it seems like there is little concern, but there is always the chance that one of your friends will decide to pull themselves into the front seat and, and uh, with the use of the, quote, grab handle, otherwise known as the cyclic. Uh, pilot inattention or a less than functional control friction can also result in cyclic movement. He says, full deflection of this control will tip the rotor's disc more than you would expect. Always respect the rotor. Approach only after making eye contact with the pilot. Lower your head, keep your eye on the disc, and be ready to go lower if needed. Up next to the fuselage, you can relax a bit, but jumping jacks are still not recommended. So that's from, uh, from Ernie. So who knows, who knows what a teetering rotor system means? I'm not sure I can explain it. It's um, <laughs> I, I could definitely not explain it. This is something that if if this was in Ken's book, we would all understand it perfectly. Basically, in order for a helicopter to fly, the rotor can makes a disc, and you be able, you you need to be able to tilt the rotor up one side up, part one side lower, so you can get the cycle. I mean the the stick to change the direction of the rotor blade. So in bell helicopters the the rotors tilt but in in a in the R44 the tilting is vertical not left and right. And if I'm wrong <laughs> we're going to Ernie I'll, will explain I'll, it. Okay. Well, well, the key thing is, I think we had talked about whether David was tall enough to walk under the helicopter, and I explained that, hey, it will tilt. And I guess the uh, the thing for people to remember is that uh, if you walk into the hell, uh, walk underneath the uh, the rotor, your haircut may vary. Is basically, you know, sometimes you, it's going to be a long haircut, sometimes a short haircut. Rotors will kill you. That's simply put. Even when you have a bride and a groom leaving a helicopter, you have to have people slowly pushing the bride's head down. What was really important with that was she also had a 22-foot train that we needed to make sure that it didn't get caught up into the rotor So when that came out. So you, you got to watch all of that stuff when, 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 when you're debarking a helicopter. All right. We got an email from Sam, Abel Samid, who... Um We've heard from uh, many times in the past and listens to the show. And he's got some more comments on the Tesla not seeing the airplane and uh, crashing into it and, and all, of, all of that. So Sam writes in and says he's catching up on a backlog of shows, just listened to episode 700, wanted to address the follow-up on the Tesla crashing into the Cirrus. He says, you're correct that you wouldn't expect an automated vehicle to necessarily be able to classify an aircraft as it's not something you would expect to see on the road. However, what this image demonstrates is 
part of the fundamental flaw in the Tesla approach to automated driving. Tesla is using only cameras as its sensors and relying on end-to-end machine learning for its perception software. Cameras are good for being able to classify objects that the software is trained on. However, unless you have a stereo camera system, they are not good for measuring distance or even orientation of objects. And Sam says, this is important because while aircraft on the road are rare, we do encounter all sorts of oddities in the course of driving. Human drivers will recognize that something is amiss and respond, hopefully correctly. If an AI system simply ignores anything it's not trained to classify, which seems to be the case here, that can be extremely dangerous. Items regularly fall off vehicles and must be avoided. Every other company developing automated driving systems is also using active sensors. Cameras are passive sensors that only capture light reflected from objects. But the active sensors uh, send out a signal and measure the distance to any object that triggers a reflection. The vehicle doesn't need to know what something is to know it should be avoided based on its size, distance, speed, and trajectory. It's essential to have some deterministic measurements of what is around you in addition to AI. So Sam points out if you're interested in knowing more, you might want to check out this white paper he wrote last year. And we'll have a link to this in the show notes. It's Accurate Ranging Perception for Assisted and Automated Driving. And we started, you know, we're talking about Teslas here and automated driving, but it started out with, the, you know, the Tesla versus Cirrus aircraft, Cirrus airplane um, story. But I think, um, you know, as David and I talk about a lot on the UAV Digest podcast, uh, automated driving is uh, something that's not unrelated to uh, automated flight in many respects. So I think the, you know, the issues are oftentimes shared between them. So it's interesting to, uh, to, to kind of, you know, look at this uh, other context for automation and think about the implications for aircraft. It's very similar if the car hits a ramp and starts flying through the air. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Oh, Finally, um, uh, Steve wrote in. Uh, he said, I really appreciate your show. He listens weekly. Uh, he works in Scarborough, Maine, just south of the Portland Jetport runway 1836. And we've talked about the Portland Jetport and the, uh, you know, the challenges of shutting down the <laughs> major runway for, uh, for some restoration. Uh, but Steve says he's enjoyed a bit more air traffic around Uh, My workplace, he says, I wanted to mention last week I was quite entertained watching on Flight Radar 24. First, a Cessna citation due to high crosswinds make two missed approaches and ultimately chose to land at Auburn. Shortly after that, a Southwest 737 also had a missed approach, to my surprise. He said it must have delayed their arrival about 25 minutes or so. Happily, the second approach was fine. Granted, it was very windy and Due to the one choice of runway, it was a severe crosswind. Just thought I'd report my observations. He says, anytime you want to add a model aviation geek to the show, let me know. So I started thinking about that. I mean, I know David does a lot of modeling, but I don't think we have done a deep dive into modeling. 
depends upon what mo- what modeling are we talking about? We're talking <laughs> about flying models. No. We're talking about computer modeling. We're talking about plastic modeling. Let's have more supermodels on the show. Supermodeling. No, I think Steve's talking about plastic modeling, but I could be wrong, you know? Maybe. I thought it was funny when Ken was talking about um, B1s and, and undisclosed photographs um, because he'd love to see my collection of about three, 250 photographs of B1s on walkarounds as well as the 50 or 60 of them in the Bombay itself. <laughs> at some point, I was going to build one, and I was going to need all of that information. <laughs> yeah, sure. All right, so we're going to wrap this up. I want to thank you for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Our guest again was Ken Katz, K-A-T-Z. The, uh, the book is The Supersonic Bone. A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber. Ken, really appreciate uh, you spending some time with us in our audience. We also appreciate you listening to the podcast. Uh, we always love it when uh, when we get to meet listeners. And um, this was a, was a happy and really informative and instructive uh, meeting this episode. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. You can find us at AirplaneGeeks.com. Look uh, for the show notes for this episode. That's uh, at AirplaneGeeks.com slash 703. That's a direct link to the show notes. And, of course, our email is thegeeks at AirplaneGeeks.com. All right, Rob, Mark, it's um, a real pleasure to uh, see you again and speak with you again, uh, collar notwithstanding. And uh, we hope to uh, uh, be seeing a lot more of you for uh, a great length of time. Well, thank you very much. And and the one thing I did notice that with this black collar, which, of course, listeners can't see, uh, a number of my friends said, we can't autograph it. We can't put rude phrases on the back of your collar and things like that. But uh, thank you for asking. And and I'll be uh, hanging around at home, as David said, for another couple of weeks, I'm sure. Take care of yourself. David, anything... uh Closing, you want to say? Nope. Um, we're glad to have Rob back. We're, we're glad to hear that bubbles is the new word in Trescott's life. And we're looking forward to seeing everybody in two weeks. Very good. And Max Trescott, how about you? Bubbles sounds like a good name for a chimpanzee. Uh, let's see. I would encourage anyone who's interested in general aviation to check out uh, the other podcast that I'm on, Aviation News Talk. And if you want to shoot me an email, that's the best way to do it. Go to aviationnewstalk.com. Click on contact at the top of the page. And I'm Max Flight. Find me in lots of places, but you can find all those places at 30,000feet.com. So please join us next time as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Keep the blue side up. Night, everybody. And thanks for listening.